Hi, you're listening to the Leave the Bottle podcast, and I'm Jim Bereford. Hi, I'm Eve Resnick. I'm Randy. This is Steve Factor. Great to be here. Great to have you, Steve. And you and I have talked a lot online about jobs, the changing world of jobs, and how maybe how not to freak out if we get lucky and uh, what to do about that. But first, let's talk a little about your first book. And I'm going to throw it over to Jim, and he can, because he just bought the book and was thrilled with it. So, Jim, why don't you do some uh, great introduction of the book before Steve gets it? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm going to be totally honest. Uh, when I knew that Steve was going to be uh, with us today, you know, obviously I wanted to do a little bit of research because I don't want to come into this cold and it would be uh, rude not to. And when I was, uh, and, and Randy sent me a link to your book on Amazon, uh, Econovation. And I was, you know, I read the, uh, I read the little synopsis on Amazon and it sounded interesting. And so I downloaded the sample. I was like, okay, well, you know, if nothing else, I'll download the sample. And I figured I'm going to be perfectly honest. I figured that's going to be all, you know, I'll do that and I'll do a little bit of research and and that's it. So I downloaded the sample and earlier this morning and I'm uh, reading it at the breakfast table and my wife is making breakfast and I started, I'm like getting fascinated about it. And I read her a couple of quotes and she's like, I want to hear more. And normally, I'm going to be honest, my wife has as much interest in economics as she does Major League Baseball. That's (laughs) how little she could care less about it. So the more I read to her, the more she kept telling me to read. But I read the entire sample, which is through probably chapter one and a half, maybe. I read the entire 15 pages or whatever to her. We finished breakfast. I keep reading to her. So she's like, well, obviously you have to buy the book. I'm like, well, yeah, duh. Of course I'm going to now. So I bought the book, ended up reading over 30 pages to her this morning while she was getting stuff done. I'm getting stuff done. Uh, and uh, so, so far I'm like over halfway through the book. It just, I was like, I, I had to stop to finally do this. Uh, and uh, I found it very cool because it's, it's not the boring academia uh, take on economics that, frankly, other than an MIT, you know, economics person, their average person is just going to, you know, get glazed eyes over it. It's not written that way. And, and I think that that's if let's put it this way, Steve, if you can captivate my wife. You've done your job. Steve has an attitude. That's why his writing's interesting. Well, there's a, there's a snark. There's a little snark. <laughs> within it that's really cool and that more economics people really need to take into account instead of being up on their high horses or in the big ivory towers a lot of times they write for other academia and it becomes boring crap that nobody but fellow academia are going to want to read which i'm going to guess steve is not what you were writing that for No. And, you know, what's interesting is the second half of the book gets to the solution. So, you know, you're still kind of in the diagnosis uh, stage in in your reading. So, uh, well, first of all, I'm I'm more fascinated by your marriage where your wife gets you to read her all her stuff than I am by (laughs) your thoughts on my book. So that's that's what I want to do the next podcast about, uh, which is uh, your secret or, or maybe her secret to a successful marriage and getting your spouse to, to do all that reading for them. 
I do that all the time. We do that all the time. Yeah. Well, that'll have to be another podcast. We've been <laughs> 20, 20 plus years now and I, and I still read her all the time, but yes. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and you know, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I guess I can, I can respond to you, Jim and, and, and to Randy at the same time. Um, the genesis of all this was really uh, the financial crisis. At the time I was working at American Express, heading up uh, uh, growth and innovation, managing uh, an innovation fund, but then the market pretty much tanked. So all non-essential budgets were frozen. So any discretionary spending was pretty much done. Um, you know, I, for the first time had to lay people off from, from my team. Uh, you know, so it was a pretty, you know, jarring experience for a lot of people, certainly, especially for those who, uh, who got laid off. But, uh, for me, you know, I lost a lot of money, um, you know, from my investments and, and, uh, uh, all of a sudden I found myself wondering, well, I always thought I was this, you know, smart investor. I should have been able to see all this stuff coming and I didn't, um, you know, and, and I was fortunate in, I guess, in a way, uh, because, you know, we were still working on existing projects, but we weren't allowed to fund any new things. So I had some extra time on my hands and decided to start doing a lot of research about what was happening in the economy, what was, um, you know, really behind uh, the, the fact that I might need to work for a lot longer than I expected because now I, I had a lot less money. Uh, so, you know, obviously, Obviously, that you know that fascination, along with my uh, uh, you know, I had majored in economics in business school, so I started to learn so many things, and it was just so obvious all of the things that were wrong. It, it, anyone who has any kind of uh, understanding of of even the basics of economics, or certainly anyone who's a professional in that industry, should have seen all these things. Uh, it didn't take me long to figure it out, and so um, at this time of uncertainty, I decided to start compiling all of these uh, lessons that I've been learning and all of these thoughts and ideas. And I created these sessions called Recessionomics that I did across the entire company. And at the time, you could imagine people were fearful for their jobs. Uh, people didn't know what, you know, what, uh, you know, their career held in store for them, uh, what the, how the company was going to do. Uh, so I started to talk about, well, what was happening, what it means for people individually, what it means for people, uh, for, for their professional lives. And then, you know, I, I kept getting new invitations after each session to go to do another one, another one. And so before you, uh, before you know it, I, I did, you know, maybe I don't know, 12, maybe 15 of them across the company. And, you know, over time it started to develop where not only was I talking about economics, I was talking about innovation. So what does this change in the economy also tell us about opportunities that are coming along? Because uh, otherwise it would get pretty dour if the only thing that was going to happen is this some downward spiral, which was what everyone was feeling at the time. So uh, that's where the concept of econovation came to be. And I started to do some talks at different conferences. And, you know, when, when people started asking me after my presentations, well, what should my daughter major in in college? I'm like, this is a lot of pressure for, you know, it's bad enough to, you know, to, to take accountability for your own family. Uh, now I had to take accountability for other people's families. So, uh, you know, I took it pretty seriously. And I, I started to, uh, even though I write uh, as as you mentioned, Jim, with uh, tongue in cheek, uh, sometimes, and and I I write 
basically what I want to read uh, because I do throw in some jokes. I do make it conversational because uh, I couldn't sit through anything that was that dry and academic. So, uh, so that was the the gist of Econovation. So the, 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 uh, the solution that I had in the book or the main theme was this transition from consumerism to what I called producerism and the empowerment of individuals to create and make things. Now, you know, at the time, and I still believe it, it, it's a very um, powerful path that we're all on. But the challenge is that that doesn't apply to enough people. Yes, there will be a percentage who will become entrepreneurs or makers or, or small business owners uh, or some kind of innovator or something that, you know, that, that gets this inherent uh, satisfaction from their work. But then there's this whole swath of humanity, this huge chunk of the population that isn't going to be that fortunate, that isn't going to have uh, this, you know, maker entrepreneurial nature and they need jobs. And so they need things to do or they need income. So uh, so that's where the next book picks up. Uh, the next book is going to be about this, this land of leisure that we're rocketing towards and all of the things that we will all need to adapt as individuals, as uh, entrepreneurs, and as uh, government in order to, uh, to live and, and be comfortable in this new world that's coming. What I was going to suggest is that we do very brief a commentary that the other three of us on uh, our uh, professional uh, and I'm going to make this really fast because it could be two days but I'll make it two, less than two minutes uh, I started out I, my parents wanted me to go to college I went to college for one quarter I was doing okay but I just didn't see the point I didn't want to and this was in the 60s I did not see the point of like reading humanities I thought hey I got a whole life to do that Stuff like that, you know, that wasn't, and I was interested in engineering, but not enough to be, to get the math. So I also played music and I became a musician and did that professionally for many years. Um, That dried up. I moved on to learn about computers and I got just good enough at it to be able to get into a job. We, when I moved over here in France, uh, because my English is perfect, more or less, uh, (laughs) I, that was an asset. So the point is I use these assets. Then we, finally, we... Um, we're doing programming and I mean, really simple stuff, but still consulting turned into consulting, turned into consulting with wine here in France and the information of wine on the web that moved into, uh, my wife and I started a business and we made a business of that. We built that and then I retired and then I'm going to ask her to talk about, because she has a degree from the Sorbonne, but she wasn't expecting to be in our company doing computer consulting. So what? let's hear about uh, your uh, move towards the microphone a little bit. <laughs> so you, from uh, the Sorbonne, what yeah, happened? Well, I had the exact opposite uh, course uh, as uh, Randy. You know, I, I started as an academic. I went to college. I got a PhD from the Sorbonne, which is certainly one of the most conservative universities in uh, in France. Uh, then, you know, moved to the States with Randy. And when we came back, that's when my trouble started because uh, in the US, I was teaching at UCLA and in France, uh, they considered that my years as a university professor you know, wasn't good enough for them. So that's when I decided to move over to editorial consulting and writing books. And uh, 
uh, when, you know, Randy being a computer, and since I was working in the publishing business, when the publishing business started getting interested in CD-ROMs and web and so on, you know, I thought maybe we could join forces. And that's how I got into business for the last, uh, let's say, 15, 20 years. And now I'm kind of going back to where my genes are, which <laughs> which are, you know, more academic and going back to uh, teaching and uh, lecturing in uh, MBA and master's program, but mostly related to international marketing. And that's true that having uh, left the academic world for uh, 20 years, when I came back, I was absolutely horrified by the way academics were writing because I couldn't understand a word of what they were writing and I was getting bored. And at that point in my life, I'm, I'm you know, I'm publishing my sixth book and uh, none of them, you know, I, I write in French and in English and uh, uh, none of them um, are really academic writing or reading. You know, that's I try to get a mix of both. You know, try to get like suddenly you do. I'm sorry, I didn't read innovation econo- um, yet, but I will because I'm teaching innovation marketing, so that's right in my in my field. And um, I think that that's what it takes. You know, if you don't want to bore the uh, wide generation who are my students at the moment, we have to find a way to make them understand uh, very deep principles of economical laws without boring them. And that's why we need, you know, books suddenly like uh, Econovation. Well, especially since they've got Facebook open. Just uh, let Jim tell his little life story of yeah. changes, and then uh, we'll get yeah. into uh, what Steve has for us. <laughs> I agree. It's, I, I agree with uh, what your wife is saying, especially with books like, say, Freakonomics. That was probably the first economics book that I've been able to read in the past 20 years that I could finish, that I could actually finish and not just get a couple of chapters in and be just like, okay, you know what? This is boring the shit out of me. I can't. I can't go on any further. So, and I, and uh, that's one of the things I was already like I was saying earlier that I was appreciating about reading your book is I kind of felt the same vibe as when I was reading Freakonomics. It's like okay, I can deal with this. I can understand and deal with it. For me, um, I was your prototypical seventies screw up. I was the I was the really bright kid who was probably one of the smartest kids in my class. And that was a bad thing in certain ways because I was just bored all the time in school and, and coming, going through uh, the seventies of divorce and kids still at that time, having the opportunity to go out and just screw up their lives by, you know, going out and partying and, and doing all sorts of messed up things. And instead of, you know, keeping your eye on, on the future. But, you know, I spent and I paid a price for that as far as I worked in the regular industry for 25 years in the service industry in various capacities, you know, restaurant manager and bartender and waiter and all that stuff. And sometimes making good money, but you know, certainly nothing that pertains a future of real economic stability, retirement, you know, benefits, all those things that are the American dream, you know, whatever that may be. And, uh. That's a, it was a, for a long time when you're in your 20s, you don't really care. 
even into your thirties, you're like, you know, especially if you're not married and you don't have kids and things like that, you don't think about, well, what am I going to be doing when I'm 70? What's going to happen when I'm 80 or, you know, nowadays quite often 90, you know, as far as economically, who's going to take care of you, you know, what kind of life are you going to have and so forth. And, uh, it's really easy for a long time to not to put those things aside and just not think about that. And I did that for a long time. I absolutely, I was one of those people who went to the doctor very infrequently because I didn't have health insurance. You know, I didn't save because I didn't, you know, I was, I wanted to buy stuff. I wanted to buy, it's kind of like in the book about you consuming over and over and over again. And then when you also, all of a sudden you don't have the money, well, I'll get a credit card. No, no, great. I have money suddenly. I can buy that stereo system. I can buy the new U2 album. I can buy, you know, I can go on vacation and, you know, and pay for everything some other day, some other day. Well, you know, for many years I did that. And all of a sudden some other day came in two different forms, one in massive credit card debt where I was like, holy shit, you know, you know, all of a sudden my wife and I are like, oh my God, you know, how did this, when you're charging for, you know, for furniture, I mean, think about that. Think about our grandparents. I don't know about you, but I'm positive that my grandparents, when they bought furniture, they bought furniture. They didn't buy it over the three-year plan or the five-year, the first two years, no interest. And, you know, all that crap that they, it's like crack. They feed it to you. These stores, okay, you don't have to pay for two years for furniture, you know, interest-free. And yeah, then they whack the hell out of you. So between that, you know, and all of a sudden at 43 years old, the place that I worked at for 18 years old burned to the ground one morning. That was it. I'm 43 years old, some college, but no degree. And suddenly it's like, I'm not that young kid anymore. How do you reinvent yourself? Luckily, I got uh, in a state government job that I really enjoy. I'm never going to get rich on it, but it's stable. It has benefits. It has health care and things like that. Things that are more important to me now at 52 than they sure were at 22. Uh, but I, you know, I see – and the funny thing is, is my wife and I for the last 10 years, if we can't pay for it in cash by meaning actual physical cash or our debit card, we don't do it. When we go on vacation, every single penny is paid with our debit card taken from you know our account. We haven't had a credit card now in 10 years. We realized the horrible mistakes that we made economically, you know, and it takes a long time to right that ship. And that's one of the things I was thinking about, Steve, when I was reading the book was it's like, we can look up, we can drive up and down the street right now and we, you know that in a lot of those behind a lot of closed doors are people who made the same disastrous decisions, you know? Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting, um, your story, because I grew up, uh, I was an immigrant, you know, we, we came here from, uh, the Ukraine. So, uh, I was used to having nothing, you know, like, or not, certainly not much. So, you know, I, I still, you know, may, maybe on some level hold a grudge for never uh, being able to afford one of those little cars you could sit in with the pedals. Now the kids <laughs> don't even have to pedal. They just have like, it has a battery, you just hit a button and it goes anyway. But, but the idea 
you know, for me of, of borrowing money was always so foreign because my parents were so conservative. We always lived below our means. We always saved. And, you know, and, and I, I had that mentality as well. You know, obviously it's, it's almost like, you know, they had depression era mentality where people yes. wouldn't spend after the depression. So I, maybe I had some of that, but, but I, I think, you know, now that I look back on, um, you know, my, my life, one of the reasons I always did live below my means was because I never felt like I was doing the thing I was meant to be doing, you know, working for someone else, uh, you know, working in corporate, I never got any real pleasure out of it. I was, I kept getting promotions. I kept moving up the chain, but, but, uh, you know, a lot of it was because people are fascinated with the thinker who thinks differently with the disruptor. But when push comes to shove, they're threatened by it because organizations uh, don't like change. They don't want change. They don't, uh, you know, they don't digest it or process it well, and they're not built for it. And so, um, you know, over time I got a little bit smarter and more, more crafty about how I would introduce it into organizations. But, you know, but that fascination and there, that initial honeymoon doesn't last when you, you have to, when, when your projection for the thing that you're proposing, uh, the five-year revenues are lower than the budget of the other people in the room. So, uh, so it, it becomes a, a scale issue and it, and it's a challenge. So, uh, I think that, um, you know, for me, the the reason now that I look back on, you know, why I was saving, and I, I'm actually writing a, uh, an article about this uh, called "Savings Equal Freedom," um, and and to me that is really important because if you have money in the bank, that gives you flexibility to, um, you know, learn a new trade, uh, to uh, maybe start a business, uh, to you know, to to travel, to move somewhere where you'd prefer living. You know, so it gives you so much freedom, and and yes, it's it's uh, deferring that um, gratification, and we're not we're not built for it because now you look around, and you're like, oh, that guy got a new car, or this person has a you know a big screen TV, and you start to get sucked into that mentality, whether you can afford it or not, and 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 that's a, a very dangerous place to be. So I I think you know I'm a big fan of delayed gratification. It's getting much much harder uh, for most people. And by the way. Way, wouldn't you think that today is this um, I'm just old and didn't realize it or not uh, when we were kids you know how they say when we were kids uh, we walked three miles to school and all that but seriously even when I was say 35 40 uh, which is the big uh, consumerism time right or 25 to 40 even um, we I mean what'd you have you had a car there were no cell phones there weren't all the gadgets there were no PCs uh, so the temptations yeah, I mean, you'd get married, you'd want a bigger house or something. But the, the number of different places that you could be looking for the next bright, shiny thing were, were quite reduced, no? So does, does that, what effect does that have? It must have an effect, right? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I wrote an article that went really viral and had no business going viral because it's longer than anything that should ever be released online. You know, they say the <laughs> ideal post should be 750 words. This was 3,700 words. Huh. Uh, and, and, and everyone shared it. It's called The Economics of Happiness. And, you know, and I talk in there about how, you know, every article about happiness is so full of fluff because, you know, they're, it, they're just blowing smoke. Uh, up your ass 
basically telling you what you want to hear. But I kind of laid out the reality. So I talked about the nine reasons I think that people aren't feeling happy. And a lot of it has to do with just hyper awareness of everyone else's stuff. Because remember, when you're on Facebook, you're you're not seeing someone's life. You're seeing someone's social resume. They're posting the things typically that are good about their life. Oh, I went on vacation. Oh, I went to this great party. Here's a photo of me with, you know, this, this hot, uh, person, you know, my, my hot date, uh, or this delicious meal. So that stuff takes a toll. Once you see, you scroll through enough of those things, you, you're, you're thinking, Oh my God, right. I'm just sitting at home having some, some like, you know, TV dinner. This is the, clearly, this is not the way life is supposed to be. And, and, but, you know, but, but that's what happens when you're always seeing everyone's greatest hits, you know, to use a music analogy, if the only albums you ever heard were the greatest hits of all the greatest bands in the world you're like wow well my song kind of sucks by comparison but no th- those guys had to put out 15 albums before they could compile that one greatest hits cd so uh, so that's what's what's happening and and uh you know but that's only one of the the symptoms i think a lot of it is you know there's a lot less um uh, uh there's more individuality and, and indiva- individuality runs contrary to uh the community where we need we crave as human beings and that absence of community has been replaced or the community has been replaced with something a little bit weaker which is digital bonds so yes i can tweet at you i can f- friend you on facebook but you don't have that shared experience you don't have that shared accountability that you used to have when you know the Kid, the, the the neighbor's kid would walk home from school at night, and then the neighbor would go, "Hey, you better you shouldn't be walking alone at, uh, at night, or or can I give you a lift home?" Now it's like you know th- that would set off a, some sort of alarm. It's like you know uh, my kid getting into a stranger's car. Well, that's because we're surrounded by strangers and not people who have a shared accountability. Part of it is living in cities, but but another part of it is that you don't invest in a place where um, you're no longer bonded to other people. You don't feel that need to invest in the school system, you know, and you talk about all these people, you know, saving the environment or buying organic. If any of them got out of their houses and drove for 10 miles in any directions, they they can find poor people with no jobs very easily. They can go to some uh, horrible neighborhoods where people, you know, do not have opportunity and maybe they can tutor one of those kids or they can, you know, provide a, you know, job training of some kind to to the parent, you know, so, so there, there are things that you can do that are within your control, but you tend to uh, focus on the more esoteric things that you can do by clicking rather than, rather than the more meaningful things that will impact your life because that person who you help in that community might turn out to be the person who does not rob you 10 years from now because they now had an opportunity uh, to, you know, to have a better education. So, so it's, it's, it's really how we view the world through this, you know, through this digital lens. And I don't blame it. It's not all bad, but, but I think it's, um, you know, it, it's a mixture of things and the, it's very easy to get sucked into that world. And because of how easy it is, we do. And so by doing so, you only have so much time, you neglect those things that are a little bit harder, like leaving your house and actually, you know, getting engaged in the things that really do matter. And there's a lot of things you can do from, uh, there's a lot of things you can do online to help people. I'll give you one real quick example. Uh, 
I saw the other, and I don't know if this is true, by the way, because what you see online, you wonder. But there was a big thing made of a guy who was homeless. I think it was in Manhattan or in you know New York, I should say. And uh, someone taught him to code, and he made his first program. And he, I saw he, that. Did you? I, so I, I don't even thing. know if yeah. that's true. So I'm going to put that reserve on it because I'm skeptical of everything that you see online. Mm-hmm. But if it's true, yeah. it does. At least it could have happened. And and that said. Um, that's an example of something that you can do. Uh, Jim and I are both big Kiva loners. I've been doing that for seven years. Uh, that doesn't help people in the neighborhood or 10 miles away, but it does help people all over the world. Uh, so there are things. I just feel that we're not really taking advantage enough of the online stuff. So either you do go out and do something and help people out there physically, or if you're online, there's plenty of ways that you could uh, do things. First of all, I was going to uh, make a laughing comment about that uh uh, last night I was at Whole Foods buying organic things. <laughs> True story. True story. I was, wrong with it, organic. Well the, funny, well, the funny thing is, is in your book, there was a, there was a, and it was a true, you know what, as much as I enjoy certain aspects of Whole Foods, some of it just fucking drives me up the wall. Um, there is some of the beautiful people that go to Whole Foods. I'm not one of them. I'm just a regular schlub. But there are some, you know, you get the whole, you know, yoga. And my wife teaches yoga, by the way. So I'm not. Everyone's wife now teaches yoga. It's <laughs> mandatory. It's and absolutely you know, mandatory. I, I know. She, 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 uh, she teaches yoga. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I go to Whole Foods and I buy some yoga organic, although our percentage of Whole Foods shopping has cut way, way down because I'm a state worker. I can't afford that much um it's 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 hard to create that balance of of the local of doing for yourself and also realizing that there are people right nearby because in my job within the state i see the ramifications within the legal system the ramifications of 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 poverty and of of chances that we're not on an equal scale and, and, and we're not, and, and I, it drives me crazy when I listen to people try to say, well, you know, we're really in America. We really all are on an equal scale as far as opportunity, educationally, economically. And it's like bullshit. That's well, the only people who say that are the people who either commute home every day to their really lovely homes in the suburbs or people who are willfully blindly ignorant to the realities. Because when you have a school on one corner that only has enough books for X amount of kids. And then you have a school five miles away or less. I live in Connecticut, so I don't live far from you that, you know, I, you know, just outside of say outside of new Haven, you know, you have Yale and you have all these lovely schools there, but as far as the actual schools themselves, you know, they are what they are, but the schools in the suburbs have a very different environment for their, for those kids than the inner city schools and they are not, it's not the same level playing field. And until we address that issue, that to me is, in my opinion, is the core issue of America right now is education before everything else, because unless and until we balance that scale of education in America, it's only going to get worse because you can only keep people down for so long. And then people and people are going to say, you know what? Enough is enough. And I think we're there. Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, or maybe not funny, just coincidental, that, um, I, you know, I wrote the book and released it before uh, the uh, the Occupy 
movement, but I have a whole section in there up front in that first uh, part talking about uh, the people's revolution. And I'm like, if, if these conditions continue to happen, uh, we are going to see that, you know, and, and, and I wrote, uh, I think it was like four or five paragraphs about why uh, business people should care about that. And I do think that that is coming because, you know, there, even if you look at it from their own uh, self-interest, they're going to run out of customers. So yes. you're going to have a market without customers. So you, you could only thin the herd so much in terms of cutting back salaries, cutting back jobs, cutting back whatever, and eventually bites you in the ass because now you've got this great new product and and only a fraction of the population can afford to, to buy it. So you see this uh, compression at the high end where you've got tons and tons of product and tons of, of, of merchandise uh, and business and, 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 uh, Businesses chasing, uh, you know, a, a small population, a very, very finite population, and then you've got the low end where you've got the, you know, the WalMarts and the, you know, the Costco's, which uh, which are doing well. But the stuff that used to be in the middle, like Macy's and maybe some of the other places, Sears, uh, not so much. I mean, they've got maybe some other management. Uh, challenges, but but as businesses, there's just less and less of that in the middle uh, because there are fewer people there. And I think that's part, of, you know, of uh, of our role as uh, educators in the business system. You know, I teach mostly in uh, business schools, uh, international business schools, and uh, for the la- here in Europe. And for the last uh, few years, what we did is that for all our MBA and master students, one of their uh, requisites to graduate is uh, to uh, have a project towards people who are not as lucky as they are. You know, we spent the first three years of their, you know, bachelor's years telling them that, you know, you don't realize how lucky you are. Either your parents can put you through a business school, which is very expensive, and you can either go on a scholarship so your parents can pay for that or you can have a part-time job and go through school and then you can go, you know, get an MBA and master. And now you have to give back to the community. And they have to have a humanitarian project of any kind, mostly international. So very often they live for uh, some of them, you know, go to Africa or uh, one was, you know, went even to work in the States. And that was a big (laughs) surprise for the school management. They said, uh, what is he going to do in the States? I said, you know, well, just walk the streets of New York or San Francisco or L.A. or Chicago and you'll see that you got a lot of people in the streets, especially families. And uh, sometimes they just stay here in their local community, you know, and they do what they have to do because we have poor people right next door. You know, when we turn around the corner of the street, here you have families uh, homeless or begging for money so they can have a hotel room. So we don't have to look at very far. And I'm very, very happy that now business schools, even very prestigious ones, are uh, aware of that problem because that's true that if our managers are now aware that they are not you know managing products or services only for rich people but they have also 
even, you know, middle class is kind of disappearing. I think, you know, everybody's complaining of that in the U.S., but it's the same in Europe. And uh, I was in, uh, in Japan not that long ago, and I know they also have problems. Well, of course, you don't see people in the streets, you know. But we know that they have people uh, who are suffering from the financial and economical crisis. So it's very, very important that business schools who are training managers, top executives, CEOs, uh, are aware of that and making their students to become aware of those problems because they will be better managers. But now, okay, so we've talked about corporations and the need for them, and uh, you put your finger right on it, Steve, in saying that, yeah, there's going to be nobody else to buy anything, services or products, if they don't have jobs. Uh, We covered education. The thing that I'm really interested in, because all four of us have done it, uh, but what if we couldn't have – I mean, what are the steps people need to take? First of all, you've traced the future out in an interesting way about uh, automation. So we should probably start with why things are going to be the way they are because that's that's one of your great topics. And the other thing, naturally, it would be nice if we have time to get to – so what does the average person do to prepare for it? Because it isn't a diploma-based thing anymore, really. Uh, first of all, what's the problem with automated robots taking all our jobs? What's up with that? <laughs> well, they're actually – isn't a problem if the society and the the, uh, the you know the mechanisms of society catch up uh, to that reality and and they're lagging. So so I think that first step you know just like in in alcoholism the first step is admitting you have a problem. Uh, so uh, this uh, here it's the first step is admitting you have automation and uh, admitting that that jobs uh, may go way or en mass as things automate. So, you know, I, I think about things that we've got lots of people or places where we have lots of people working right now. So let's, let's talk about some of the industries that are undergoing change. Healthcare. Um, you are going to be uh, one doctor is going to be able to remotely monitor thousands of patients for vitals at once. People are wearing some sort of device that is able to capture them. So uh, now we're not going to need as many doctors, or certainly maybe even as many hospitals, and and we we could be more efficient in terms of allocating healthcare resources. Next, education. Um, you know the rote learning component of education that is going to go away from the classroom. Uh, there are going to be just more efficient ways to get that knowledge into people's heads. Now, that doesn't mean that teachers go away in terms of teaching critical thinking and all those other things. However, um, you still cr- can create massive efficiencies where one effective communicator, uh, you know, one person or one technology that's great at disseminating and testing information can now educate a million or 10 million or 50 million uh, kids as opposed to, um, you know, one teacher per 30 students. So, uh, so that's being automated. You look at, um, uh, uh, law enforcement, another thing that's been, you know, very labor intensive, but l- think of all the monitoring technology that now exists. Look at London as a city. is It's the most monitored city in the world. They've got cameras everywhere. Um, so, uh, so you, is that, a, you will, is that a good thing though? 
Well, listen, there are certainly pluses and minuses to all of it. I, you know, the, the libertarian in me says, yeah, that's horrible because, uh, you know, I want to be able to have my freedom in public places. But the, uh, all, but that same libertarian also says, well, you know what? If you hate it enough, move to Costa Rica or, or somewhere in Latin America where they don't have that technology. And then if you, you have can live, the money to do that, if you, but you know what? It's surprisingly not that expensive. You know, you can, you can save up for the 700 to to thousand dollar flight over the course of three four years or five years uh, and and live pretty cheaply once you get there uh, more so than you can in, in other places so so I think you know within reason a lot of things or more things are within your reach than you realize but but to, you know but you know law enforcement is an, another example and then just the ability using data uh, and and using you know sensors you're going to be able to direct much fewer or many fewer resources towards where they're most needed. Same thing goes uh, for military. You look at, you know, for all of his faults, and he certainly had a lot of them, um, uh, Don Rumsfeld was kind of a visionary because one of the things that he said is, look, we're, we need to cut the, the ground forces. We need to cut all of this uh, stuff that that isn't going to be necessary anymore. And and the, the old guard in the military didn't want to do it. But he re- recognized that, look, the future is going to be fought on on PC, on PCs or some sort of computer devices, um, or it's going to be fought with drones. It's not going to be a bunch of tanks and a bunch of planes. Um, and we certainly have more than enough. And so, uh, you know, we're all of these heavily labor intensive industries that are huge are all compressing and all changing. And so um, a, a couple of things happen as a result. Um, people who are typically more educated, uh, they adjust in terms of birth rate to the opportunities that are out there, uh, either for themselves to, you know, live an enjoyable life or for kids to be able to, to do things. So you already see now, um, a major decline in birth rate. So I think as the number of jobs uh, decreases and as life becomes more and more comfortable, uh, you will see fewer people having kids and, and, and but, but, um, uh, there's going to be this period where there's a lag. There's going to be a period of maybe 75 years or so, 50, 75 years where you're still going to have many more people than you do um, uh, jobs. And so what we need to do is uh, push society into a direction where we address that. And, and, you know, the way I look at it in terms of solutions, and this is what the next book is going to be about is just like energy solving the energy crisis it's not going to be one thing it's not going to be all solar and we're done it's going to be some combination or some portfolio of you know wind solar hydro uh, nuclear and all these other things so it's the same thing here so we're in some cases we need to create jobs in other cases we're going to need to just you know uh, uh, fund people and, and be able to you know it's it's going to be some sort of wealth transfer in other cases it's going to be um, uh, uh, create, creating incentives for small business. And I talk about why that is because, you know, the bigger things get, the more efficient they are. The smaller things get, the less efficient they are. So by creating inefficiencies, you're also creating jobs. Now, you know, whether that's desirable for society and whether we should be creating it, um, you know, the way I see it is that uh, people need to feel useful. 
They need to feel wanted. They need to feel that they're contributing something. And as the work has gotten more and more esoteric where, you know, you can sit at a job, someone will pay you to tweet all day. Uh, that is as esoteric as it gets. So how do you connect what you did for an entire day to the reality in the world? How did the world change as a result of what you spent your eight hours doing? It didn't. And so um, that that also takes a toll on people. So you're asking a lot of people to do a lot of meaningless stuff. Um, so I think, you know, even at the low end, you know, you talk about people who deliver food or people who uh, work in the food service industry, that stuff's going to be automated. So some could say, well, uh, that's going to get rid of jobs. Well, if we have a different model and we have a population that's self-regulating where people, you know, adapt to, you know, to have as many kids as the world is able to afford, then we all of a sudden have a world that that can can manage this transition to automation. And then people can be free to do uh, podcasting or to do, you know, other things that they're more interested in that may not necessarily generate income. So I think that's where we need to move. And, and what I'm dealing with in the solution part of the book is what that portfolio starts to look like, that portfolio portfolio of, of, of solutions for, you know, for creating jobs and for managing that transition. And, and that has implications for individuals as well as businesses, as well as, um, you know, uh, government. No, but like here in the United States, um, there has to be much more commitment than if we're going to go to the digital future, which I envision also. I think at this point that the box is open. It's never getting closed. That's the direction we're heading. And that's, People over the last 20 years of the internet have shown they love the internet. They love the digital life. They don't want to go back to the days of their grandfathers or their great grandparents of the good old days. They don't want that. But if you look at the United States, as far as our internet infrastructure compared to many other countries, we're way behind. We're losing the battle. When you look at South Korea and you look at parts of Europe, there's just there has not been it's more than just internet speeds how much different it is in other countries compared to the u.s granted i know we're physically a much larger country with vast areas of open terrain you can't expect necessarily that rancher in montana to you can't look at them the same as whole the city of seoul as far as the ease of being able to deal with that but it just seems like quite often that there's a lot of people who aren't really looking at that picture and thinking about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now when when South Korea and when, uh, you know, the Scandinavian countries and other countries around the world are really putting massive amounts of their dollars into staying technologically ahead of the bell curve where we're not. Um, where does that lead us? You know, I, I've thought a lot about this and, you know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, root cause analysis and looking at, you know, what's driving a lot of this um, uh, inefficiency and a lot of these uh, bad decisions uh, or lack of progress. And uh, what it comes to, at least in my mind, is um, we are not represented anymore by uh, politicians with our government is not very representative uh, because it what, what it does now is it represents 
contributors, the the donors who, uh, you know, when it takes millions and millions or in the case of the presidency, a billion dollars to get elected. Well, guess whose interests are going to be represented? Not the uh, not the, the people who voted. They're just chumps who showed up at the polls. Uh, the, the, the ones who get their phone calls answered are the ones who were the paying customers. So I think we need to bring back into alignment the uh, the constituents with the representatives. And, and and right now that is grossly out of alignment. So I think that level of corruption needs to needs to change. So once you you can do that effectively and take the money out of politics, that's why I support uh, an organization called Represent Us, uh, Represent.us. Um, it's it's a single issue issue organization where it's all about um, taking the money out of politics and and passing an, an anti-corruption law and getting politicians on board with uh, promoting it. And, and so for me, it's it's really a matter of first doing that because I don't think we can expect uh, real solutions when you've got uh, you know uh, companies and and rich donors who are the the drivers. So if 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 the uh, people do get represented, it's purely accidental. It's only because it, it, they happen to align with an interest of some other more powerful party, and so that has to change. And the other part of it and. I don't always want to blame the system. I think people need to take accountability too. We've gotten dumb and we've gotten lazy. And, you know, and, and so that is not, there's no excuse for that. And, you know, and when we talk about education and poor communities, it's the same thing. You know, at some point there, there is no, there are not enough resources in any government in the world that can substitute for a parent who asks their kid, did you do your homework? And then, um, you know, there's, there's just not enough of it in the world. So so we can't pretend that systemic and syst- uh, solutions are the only answer. At some point, there needs to be accountability and maybe we can help people along the way who want to learn how to manage their budget or how to get a better job, but they have to take that first step. So I, I'm a big fan of meeting people halfway. You know, they they have to show the effort. So if we take an, an interest in, in our government and who's getting elected and, and how things work and, and we have uh, voting rates above 50%, which we rarely do, or whatever it is, 54, some really disgrace. low number. It's really a disgrace. And so so when, when you have uh, a populace that doesn't care, you get the government you deserve. So yes, we could blame politicians, we could blame the system, we could blame um, you know lack of, of education, but we also need to look at ourselves and, and figure out how we can affect change within ourselves and, and get a little bit smarter about you know what's happening in the world but you know when you um when you buy a microsoft product and you're coupling it with something from apple you call microsoft for solution and they say oh but that's happening on your mac you have to call apple you call apple they they shove it back to microsoft and i see this uh, effect and it drives me crazy the polarization where the one percent well, first of all, everybody blames this on the 1%, and there's, there's a lot of truth in that. But the 1% says people are takers. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe what you just said, which is that, on the other hand, a lot of times people will blame society. And it isn't society. It's get up off your ass. Now, that's I'm just saying that there are cases like that. But I see both sides. And I, the, I, this is why I'm having trouble seeing a good solution, because you can't 
neither side can do everything. So we have to figure out a way for that to work together. And I'm still not really seeing how that's going to happen. We have to make the little changes. And the big changes you're talking about, people voting would be nice. That would be great. Yeah. I, I think a lot of it is going to have to happen despite government, not mm-hmm. because of it. Um, and, and that goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is community. And, and and if every person who's doing well took accountability for helping, you know, one or two people who aren't, uh, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it goes viral because once there's one kid in class that's trying to get good grades and two, then three, then four, then that creates a pull for for others because the value system starts to change where the cool kid used to be the the one who cut out of class and you know and and smokes and you know and and, and flunks out uh maybe the cool kid becomes the one who who gets good grades and then you know and then enough of them uh, get to a professional career where they're making some money and stories go back and then they you know then their family moves out to a better neighborhood you know what that has an effect too but it has to be a feel inclusive um, and so I think that's where that accountability takes. Now, there are ways that technology can help, you know, uh, bring those uh, people together. And it already is. It's uh, brought down the cost of computers uh, to uh, to a huge extent. There's, you know, there's very few people who can't afford a computer. I've gone online, you know, between Chromebooks at $148 and, and um, uh, you know, Windows computers at a sub 300. They're out there. P- everyone can save for I mean all I mean there yes there are extreme cases but but the, for the things that that people buy you, instead of the TV uh, that everyone has forego that and buy a $148 Chromebook uh, and invest the remainder in internet access that almost everyone can do that so technology is helping but you know but people need to push themselves or someone else needs to help them kind of get to that next place where they're looking not for uh, porn online, but they're looking for how do I learn how to uh, code or how do I learn um, how to start a small business or how do I learn a, you know, a particular skill that might help me get promoted to a better job? How do I use Office or how do I sign up for um, Udemy where I can take a class on, you know, on a variety of, uh, of, of, of skills? It's funny that you bring up the Chromebook because I'm on one right now. I'm, I do this on – I have two Chromebooks. I've had four altogether. I gave one to my niece. She's 10 years old. Her school now, in school, they all use Chromebooks because obviously Chromebook uh, has created this big educational uh, system around, all around America. So she was already completely aware of the whole Chromebook system. When my wife and I bought our first home PC – back in 1995 and we did it at uh circuit city circuit city no longer around rip circuit city and i got it with a circuit city card worse that was back in my days of still being really stupid it was like twenty nine hundred dollars i think it was the very first pentium the pentium 75 processor very first one with a with the dial-up modem you know it was just like with that your phone is more yeah. powerful than that right now. Probably 10 yeah, times other, more but, powerful. But you know what? With the interest, because I had, you know, because at that time my, uh, you know, my interest, was, my uh, credit rating wasn't good. So the interest that I paid on it was phenomenal. I think that twenty eight or $2,900 ended up costing over $5,000. It was like $5,200, $5,300 if I remember it right. For, and it was a one gig hard drive and it was the 75 penny. 
and and I think back back to that in 1995 or early 1996, and I think to now I'm sitting here in this moment. I've got two Chromebooks open. I've got my my uh, Nexus Four phone. I've got uh, my Nexus Seven tablet, all to go online with, with much more computing power than that first computer ever. And the entire, if you added up the two Chromebooks, the Nexus Seven. And well, the the phone uh, I paid flat out for two hundred bucks. All together was like maybe five or six hundred dollars for four computers, basically. Yeah. So, you know, and and that's where we're at now. I think that now, unless you're a big graphic designer, I mean, if you want to do that for a Mac, that's fine. That's great. But I think realistically, realistically, ninety percent of people out there, they surf, they email, and that's about it. They surf and they email and, you know, they listen to music on it. I can consider that part of the whole surfing experience. But I think that we're finally at a stage where people are being more honest about what their digital needs and wants are. They want the flat screen TV. They want a Roku for, you know, streaming, uh, streaming services. And they want, you know, they want a $300 or less laptop. You know, they still want their high end phones a lot of times, by the way, folks, don't buy subsidized phones. It's the biggest freaking scam of the century. It's horrible. Pay up front. You'll save a lot of money. And that's my tip of the day. I learned my lesson on that and I will never, ever again buy a subsidized phone. Verizon, go to hell. I don't want to do it. <laughs> I just made that speech to my doctor. He says, I'm coming to the end of my contract. What should I do? And I went through a whole spiel with Rip him. Rip it up. Rip it don't up. Don't do it. No, you know, but... um uh, Eve has a question about she's working in wine tourism. This is a big upcoming thing. It's related to her luxury work, but I mean that's going to be democratized and people wine is huge on the internet of course as we all know and it's getting to be more of an interesting thing both wine and beer. You want to know about the how the when there's going to be more time, right? So I was muted as usual. Uh, okay. It's nice to have a button, you know. I need a mute button for my wife too. Like, if you could, if you could market that, Randy, you, oh, you've got to make a fortune. Oh. Mute button. Well, okay, thank man. you guys. Oh. <laughs> Just tell me if I need to get out of the room. <laughs> yeah, you know that. That's uh, uh, especially in France. You know, everybody is having five weeks of vacation, and now that you are supposed to work thirty-five hours. Uh, a week. Never met somebody who really worked 35 hours. You know, everybody I know works more like 60 or 70. But it seems like you have people working 35 hours a week and having five weeks of vacation a year. So now we're talking about a leisure culture. And, you know, when you are managing a luxury MBA, you're trying to tell your students, okay, you have to see affluent customers who are going to have plenty of time on their hands and we need to create products and services that they will be interested in. But at the same time, you have all the people who have all the time in the world on their hands because they don't have any work or not enough work. So how mm -hmm. do you see the way, how can we manage that in the future? Yeah, you know, this is really interesting. I think the, um, you know, uh, 
not only is luxury the time you're not at work, I would make the argument that a lot of the time you're at work is luxury. So think of how people spend their day between coffee breaks, lunch, um, uh, surfing the web for articles, uh, uh, some social media that they do, uh, you know, uh, and, and some other kind of social type activities that are that don't benefit the, the company or their job per se. You know, if you were to cut cut that up and analyze it, you you might realize that companies don't actually need more than two hours of productivity per day on average for most individuals. So, but we're we're still locked into this old model where it's time based rather than output based. So we could actually unlock uh, thousands of hours a year for people uh, because of that. You know, once we get out of that mentality, if I just need you to sell, you know, 30 new customers a year. If you get that done by August, go away, have fun, you know, so, so then, you know, or if you, whatever, if it's a monthly target. So, so my point is that, that we're still locked into a model that's, so there's still latent leisure left to unlock. Now, to, now what to do with it? Now this becomes challenging because there are a lot of, uh, let's call it less satisfying things you could do at that time. And they're more satisfying. So the more satisfying tend to be experiential. So, so you're kind of right on board there, you know, and I'm a big fan. I'm, you know, I wrote an article in Harvard business review called, um, uh, happiness will not be downloaded. And I talk about that. The people who had the happiest, uh, uh, jobs were the ones that, um, had three things. They were helping others. They were, they had some, made something tangible, uh, and they had sensory stimulation. And, and, uh, if you look at a lot of jobs, that is not the case. Now, those three things still apply, um, uh, to your personal life just as much as they do to your work life. So what are the things that stimulate your senses? So cooking has become extremely popular because then you're using your hands, you're smelling, you're tasting, you're, it's visually appealing. Um, so it has a sound when it crackles on the pan. So almost every sense is stimulated. So, so that is, is, is huge. And that may, may be one of the last doer sort of, uh, things that are out there that truly stimulate people that they don't freak out about doing themselves. You don't see a lot of woodworking, but you do see a lot of cooking. Um, so, uh, but I do think there's going to, that is really important. So, you know, it's great to be an intellectual, but the problem with it is we still have a body. So if, if, if we only had a brain and we could, if we were just on a day, desk and it was just a head, uh, then that would be fine. And we could all just connect to Google Plus or some other network and, and be perfectly happy exchanging ideas. But the reality is we need to lift things. We need to hammer them. We need to cook them. We need to, you know, gather. So so I do think that that there is going to be a huge desire, whether it's um, outwardly, whether people are outwardly aware of it or it's subconscious to reconnect with first, uh, you know, uh, the world and second with other humans. And the humans that you'd like to connect 
connect to, the ones that, that have the most impact on your life are the people in your community. So when, when I say about helping others, yeah, you feel kind of good when you help uh, a junior person in your job and you coach them through to, and they get a promotion. Yeah, that feels good. But you know what feels even better? If you uh, coach you know, your, your family or you, you're able to help uh, you know, an uncle or an aunt through a difficult time in their life. You know, so, so that those things have much higher yields uh, and returns to your life or people who live directly in your community. If you help someone open a shop and then you walk by that shop every day, you know, that has a much more meaningful um, effect on you psychologically than if you help someone you never see who lives in some other town. Uh, so, so I think that it's going to be a combination of two things. It's going to be, or those three things, it's going to be, um, sensory stimulation, tangibility, and helping others. And, and even those have flavors of, um, a, you know, uh, of strength and weakness, as I said, you know, the ones that you help, the closer they are to you, the stronger it'll be. So, so the, the, that's what the next book is about, you know, at least on a personal level, you know, um, how do you help create products and services that achieve those three criteria that help affect people's lives in those three ways and the closer you can do it the the or, or the more powerful that 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 effect is the more satisfied and more loyal the customers will be and uh, when is uh, going your uh, when is your book going to be available So I, you know, so I, I'm going to make it, it's probably going to be about 70,000 words, about 30,000 are written right now. And it's kind of in a detailed outline format. Uh, I'm going to spend a lot of the summer, uh, probably July and August, uh, finishing it up. So I'm targeting an October release uh, for the book. So, but there's a sign-up sheet on Idea Factory, so if people want to go, they can sign up to the mailing list. So, you know, I'll still be releasing articles that are kind of related to it that people could get notified on. And then when the book is out, I'll I'll send a notification. But I, I don't spam or anything. I I send out maybe once a month, but usually just new articles. We need to mention uh, all these things. We the book we were talking about is called Econovation: The Red, White, and Blue Pill for Arousing Innovation, and that's available on Amazon and probably in any bookstore you could ever think of. Kindle edition. Kindle edition. Yeah. Oh, I already clicked. Don't worry. <laughs> I also wanted to mention, Steve, you're the domain for um, for your uh, what you the, what you just mentioned. What is the website? It's ideafactory.com, but factory is with a K instead of a C. So uh, ideafactory.com. All my all my past articles or most of them are on there. Uh, so is the information about the uh, the last book and then the forthcoming one, uh, I, which I, is yeah. I want. I feel like we haven't even touched anything. I'm just I'm I'm looking at the the time clock and I'm like bummed right now because it's like there was like so much more I wanted to talk about. I would like love to continue this on at some point in time. Because, well, maybe like, we could do we could do a part two. You know, you yeah, you got to leave like, like more you got to leave them book. wanting more because exactly. there was more like there was more questions I have for you in the book and uh, you know it's like I haven't even like tipped the iceberg on that one yet. Um, oh man, we'll okay. do it. We'll do a volume two in a month or two. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, Jim, yeah, by then you will have you will have read the second part, so you oh, might have a whole today. new series of questions. Oh, by later today, I will have. Frankly, I, so like I said, I'm already halfway through it, and uh, and I I had to ask you about the forty seven percent part there. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll ask you next time about the forty seven percent. Randy, you'll you'll have to read it, and then you'll understand where I'm where 
the question. Yeah, that yeah, I I, and I want to underline that uh, Steve has been very, very active on Google+. Plus. I don't know if that'll continue. He might get tired of it. But uh, I've had a great time. Uh, when I look at what you post, and a lot of times I chime in, and because you answer, this is this big word, the E-word engagement, you know. But, I mean, <laughs> you are open to people, and you, you have... Um, you have a way of presenting things, and they do respond. I don't know if Jim, have you ever um, have you ever spoken to Steve? Maybe you haven't on Google Plus, but you're actually, you know, I'm. I just started because of you. I I just the other day, like earlier this week, started following, and it's like I'm bummed now that I didn't earlier because you know what? I'm so sick and tired on all of social media. Yeah, I'm sick and tired of. No, the nonstop of, of nothing but memes. And, you know, memes are fine. They have their place and, and they can be fun. And I'm not a get off my lawn kind of person when it comes to all of that stuff. But I'm kind of like, don't step on my lawn all the time kind of person when it comes to that. Well, I just wanted to underline that people should be looking for you. I don't know how yeah, are you absolutely. active. Are you real active on Facebook, Steve? Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty active. It, it, the problem with Facebook is that, you know, the, the people you're friends with or mm. related to don't necessarily share the same interests. And I have kind of a, right. as you can tell, uh, uh, an eclectic set of uh, ideas and, and interests. So uh, sometimes, you know, you find that cluster that, that is very responsive. But, um, you know, uh, the people who follow my business stuff or like more innovation oriented things typically follow idea factory, uh, on Facebook. And then on, um, my personal account, I can be followed on there and that's where I post, you know, I'm a little bit more lighthearted on there. So it's more, you know, just the things that I experience, funny stories or things I experienced during the day. So I, I, I actually wrote a thing that I think it's public. Um, it's, uh, I just went to Paris. Uh, so, uh, so I, I didn't realize it. I, I probably could have met up with you guys. Yes. I don't know where you, I wish, I wish you would have, uh, you let us know next time. It didn't occur to me. Yeah. So I, I was just there. So I wrote my 16 observations from Paris. Like that's something that, that I, I wouldn't post anywhere else except Facebook. Cause it was more like for, for that group. So, I, you know, I do mix it up a little bit. So when you follow me in different places, you get a slightly different flavor. Do you write on Medium? You know, I don't because, you know, I, I, I'm having trouble just getting, I have right now, no joke, 750 drafts of articles that I want to write. So, right. so, uh, and then, you know, some of them are in pretty good shape. They just need a little uh, TLC. So the, the challenge with it is that, you know, I, I write for Forbes now I write for LinkedIn. I, I can write for HBR, but they have a little bit more of an, uh, editorial process. So it takes a little bit longer. So for me, it's, you know, I, I'm just out of capacity, you know, right. like between trying to, to run a business and then write, like I'm just tapped out. So right. yeah, I, I would probably write more and participate more. I just, I can't find the time. Well, find the time for us again pretty soon. Okay. I would love to, this was fun. All right. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Stephen. People- you do, you do have to come back. And, uh, I wanted to make sure that people knew that they can reach you and you can actually have discussions and you know, who knows one of these discussions could even be part of the, the new book. And absolutely, absolutely. You never know. Perchance, you never know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny though. I, I do think there's some people on social media and certainly on Google Plus that you know kind of expect a response for everything, or instantly they almost treat it like instant messaging. Like, you know, why haven't you texted me back? Right, uh, right, but right. but it, it's tough. I, I I tend to use it 
you know, a little bit more like entertainment. So I, I have, um, you know, maybe I have a perverse definition of entertainment, but I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I do like to engage around ideas and, and these kinds of things. So there are a lot of smart people there. And, you know, I do kind of dive in and, and pull out when I get really busy. So, uh, but I do try try to participate because I, I think it's it's fun and I love to a good debate so that's why I find people like yourselves uh, to to do it with on uh, on that network excellent and Eva you're going to be starting to write again on winebrandsblog.com one of her books is called wine brands it's a book for the, really pretty much for the trade about uh, the a lot of the experience that she's had with working with very big name brands you're going to start writing again yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, I have to like it's Steve. Smarter. Same yeah. problem as Steve. Uh, she's yeah, got she's got too, other too work to do. Time, too much yeah. time. Too, too many things and not enough time. And that's true. That between teaching, a little consulting, writing, you know, it's uh, sometimes and traveling. I travel a lot, so it's sometimes it's a little hard. But I try to. Maybe I'll be a little more uh, a little more present on Google Plus because I can see. You know, I've been looking around keeping quiet because I don't have time to engage, as everybody says. But, uh, engage to me. Yeah, well, that already <laughs> takes up a lot of time and energy. And, the guy uh, with the mute button, no yeah. less. <laughs> exactly. He does. He has the, the mute button. I don't. Also, my hearing is very bad at certain times of the day. Yes. Jim writes on Medium, and uh, he has a, yeah. an excellent story, more than one story, but he had one that was really fantastic. Uh, how did they find uh, your Medium, Jim? Medium.com uh, uh, backslash James Bearford with two R's. So that's easy enough. And, of course, we've been talking, we've been talking to Steve Factor on Leave the Bottle podcast, which you can find at leavethebottlepodcast.com. You can get a quick resume even on a mobile, by the way, by going to ltb.re. LTB like leave the bottle, RE like re. <laughs> and uh, that will give you all of the episodes, and it will give you a quick a look at our Medium collection. And if Steve writes something on, on uh, Medium, we would put it in our collection maybe, if it's good enough. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I, I I look forward to making the cut someday. <laughs> you, can also, uh, you can also get episodes at Stitcher, uh, Pocket Cast for Android, and on SoundCloud. So uh, we're 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 everywhere. And iTunes, <laughs> which you hate to mention. Thanks, everybody. It was really fantastic. We'll see you soon. I hope. Thank you, Steve, so much. Thank you, Thank Eden. You Thanks. Steve.